If becoming more religious has made you more judgmental and harsh, you need to reevaluate if you are worshiping God or your ego. You're listening to the Experience Sikhi podcast, a deeper look into the Sikh identity. We present to you open, honest, and inspiring stories. No armor, pretense, or sugarcoating. Welcome to the Experience Sikhi podcast. I'm Prabhjot Kaur. And I'm Kalinda Singh. Just before we begin, we just want to start the podcast by acknowledging that we are meeting on Aboriginal land that has been inhabited by Indigenous peoples from the beginning. As settlers, we're grateful for the opportunity to meet here, and we thank all the generations of people who have taken care of this land for thousands of years. In particular, we acknowledge the, the traditional ter- territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Ohlone, and Tamian. Just some quick reminders to please comment, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. You can also send us questions and feedback at our email address, which is podcast at experienceiq.com. Also, most importantly, we want to say, like always, that we're not mental health professionals, and we are just here to learn and share some of our opinions and help our listeners learn as well. With us today is my name twin, Prabhjot Singh. Prabhjot Singh is from San Jose, California, and he uh, works he works in California's public education system as a special education teacher for students with severe behavioral and mental disorders. He is currently pursuing his doctoral degree in the field of educational leadership. His approach to destigmatizing mental health issues is through empathy. And in this podcast, he talks about how we can become more empathetic as human beings and as sex. Other key topics that we're going to discuss are gratitude, introspection, and the role of parents in a child's mental stability. He has a great outlook on mental health that we think that you'll definitely enjoy. If you want to follow his experiences, his Instagram handle is at double underscore Prabhjot Singh. So that's at double underscore Prabhjot Singh. And without further ado, here is Prabhjot Singh. All right. Uh, we just wanted to welcome you onto the Experience Sikhi podcast and thank you for um, taking out your time to do this all the way from San Jose, California. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Good, good. Excellent. In cold Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little cold here too, but we're getting by. Yeah. So uh, we wanted to start off with um, asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'll just, well, I have one older brother. I'm in a family of four. And uh, career wise, I am in the field of education. So I teach students that have severe mental and emotional disorders. I've been doing that for about five years now. Um, I'm also pursuing my doctoral degree in educational leadership. I'm midway through, have about a year and a half left, can't wait to finish. <laughs> awesome. um, but yeah, so that is a career in educational and then and that's family. So yeah, I've been I've been doing work in the mental health field. Um mostly have experience with kids. Um though I do work pretty closely with the staff there, the psychologists and the therapists. So I do have some experience as far as um with adults, but mostly my specialization is with kids. 
Nice. So can you walk us through your professional journey, like how it started, um, even kind of maybe retrospective and just think about how you potentially got to that position? Um, As in, like, maybe there's something you were thinking and reflecting back, like that was the moment that kind of got me into this type of field. Yeah, so um, it's funny. I actually did my undergrad in business. So I was planning on being a business major in management wow. information <laughs> systems. And it's the perfect yeah. major here in the Bay Area because there's tech companies everywhere. And yep. that, that was kind of where my head was at. Um, so I graduated um, with my business degree and I got my first job as a research analyst and I just absolutely hated it. And it was not something I, I could see myself doing for, for the next 25 to 30 years till retirement. So um, I did have some exposure to the world of education because my mom is also a teacher. Um, she teaches kids that have uh, autism, that are, that are on the autism spectrum. So wow. yeah, so that's how, I, I mean, I did have exposure to that world and I kind of knew what it was about. So. Once I quit my research analyst job, pretty shortly after I got it, um, I started substitute teaching, and my first substitute position was with um, they kind of the district that was that I was in knew that my mom was a teacher, so they kind of knew me already. So I, I they kind of gave me my own classroom, a brand new classroom with kids with emotional disorders, and it's this disability with these kids is kind of widely known as one of the tougher ones to deal with in special education. So. Yeah. Um, I made it through the rest of that school year and, um, and I was like, you know, it's tough, but this is something I, I definitely, um, feel satisfied doing. And at the end of the day, I, I kind of look back and say, you know, I, I enjoyed what I did. So I started my teaching credential in the fall of that, uh, of that, uh, year, which was 2013, I want to say, um, or 14. And then, so, um, I started my credential program, full-time school, um, and I was just continued to substitute here and there. And then in the in the fall of that year, I got a call from the district saying, you know, one of the teachers is is leaving. Uh, the classroom is is her classroom is really tough, which is the reason she's leaving. She just couldn't handle it. So they called me back. I got the job and I've been there since. And uh, I have a good team that I work with. And it's the same population of kids I've been working with since the beginning. So this is kind of all I all I really know in the in the field of education, but it's tough, but I enjoy it. Wow, that's amazing! And do you see any uh, challenges that come to mind, um, or even like challenges that you're working through right now that you feel are uh, happening in the classroom, and you're looking for solutions uh, in terms of uh, yeah? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's challenges that come up on a daily basis. Um, we have. Uh, students that are extremely violent, um, they will run off campus, they will attack other other staff members, attack me personally, I've been bit, cu- kicked, punched, everything, you name it. My so God. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's tough. And so controlling all of those triggers that they may have, um, uh, figuring out how to make them successful academically and socially, because generally a lot of these kids end up... Uh, in our incarcerated, uh, like an overwhelming number of them end up incarcerated after high school. They deal with unemployment, uh, substance abuse. So we're trying to kind of change that, their their trajectory from this point by giving them a lot of positive attention and, and, and giving them that, that support and love. So 
there's just there's continues to be challenges i mean there's we can control what we can control in the classroom but then a lot of them come from traumatic homes have had traumatic uh, backgrounds so we control what we can control and we try to communicate with parents when we can but every day is a new challenge you never know some days are great and then some days it's almost yeah. like why am i even doing this so it's right. it's 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 tough day to day but it's it's unpredictable but it's it's satisfying yeah, uh, I was just going to say, probably rewarding. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, probably very rewarding. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask about your, so you said you're doing your doctoral in educational leadership. Mm-hmm. You're doing that while you're also teaching full-time? Yeah, I know. Some would call me a little crazy for doing that. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been, uh, kind of all I know is school and work because I haven't really had a time where I was just working or just going to school in the past like seven or eight years. So I'm kind of looking forward to, because I did my bachelor's and then I did my credentials and I did my master's and now I'm doing my doctoral. So I haven't had a, a break in between. So I just kind of want to get it out of the way and then see where life takes me. But yeah, that's the doc, the, the school is full time and then the school, my work where I teach is also full time. So I'm doing okay. that, those concurrently. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Appreciate I know. It. Yeah. <laughs> And you just finished saying, like, Prabjots are alike. We're not alike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I think I have to go back to school in March, and yeah. I'm, like, dreading it. Oh, I hate yeah. school. No, that's tough, being yeah. being in uh, doing work and school at the same time, especially yeah. full-time, both things. So that's, yeah. that's crazy. That's it's admirable. A, it's a lot of work, but it's it'll be it'll be worth it in may of 2020 it'll all be worth it <laughs> <laughs> oh that's not too far away yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i can kind of see yeah. the finish line now yeah um i wanted to ask so here in toronto it's like especially brampton it's a lot of Punjabi sick population what is it like in san jose like are the students you're teaching are they of Punjabi backgrounds oh or? no so um so i le- i teach in uh a district where there's like I want to say 75 to 80 percent of the population is Hispanic. Um, okay. It's a low socioeconomic area, and that that's not really reflective of the bigger California demographic. But just in my specific district, there's a lot of students from a Hispanic background. Um, Punjabi population-wise, I mean, we we do have Punjabis here. It's definitely nothing like Toronto or Surrey. I've been to both. Um, it's it's not like that. You'll see like Bobby in the parks playing Dosh and stuff. But like, there's not there's not like <laughs> You're everywhere. Kids ever. Exactly. Yeah, it's not like that here. So here's uh, more uh, Hispanic students, and there's some Asian students, African Americans. Um, but every single student in my class right now. Well, actually, nine of my ten are from a Hispanic background. One is Caucasian. So, oh, wow. um, okay, yeah, that's kind of reflective of of the larger district as well. Okay, gotcha. And then, in terms of like uh, on this podcast, we want to focus on minority groups, particularly like the Punjabi Sikh community. But even you work with minorities, Hispanic communities. Yeah. Do you see that stigma towards mental health there, or? Have you been exposed to stigma within the Punjabi Sikh community in San Jose? Um, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of, um, I would say more so there's stigma in the Punjabi community than there is in Hispanic communities. The parents mm-hmm. that I work with are generally pretty open to kind of what we're talking about. Like, you know, we see that your child is having these difficulties and a lot of times their reactions aren't like, oh, you know, he's just weak or he's always been, uh, he's always been like this. But I do see that in the Punjabi community a lot. So there is definitely um, a stigma in the uh, Sikh community. And I think that is reflective of a lot of things we have culturally in the Punjabi community. Um, 
kind of masculinity is a big concept mm-hmm. and then there's a way that a man is supposed to be and act which is why we have a lot of uh alcoholism um in our community it's just ways of coping with it internally without actually reaching out for help so um and a big one is um i think the ego um i i think that just the masculinity concept and in larger cultural contexts there's the ego that kind of dwells within people makes them do things and act act in ways that they wouldn't otherwise if they're aware of their ego. So, um, and also a lot of good mental health I feel is taken for granted. Um, so a lot of people with good mental health attribute it to their own doing and, you know, um, I'm just a happy person or I look at things differently or whatever it is. And I think that is also reflective of ego. Um, but like if you look in Barney, uh, just an example is in Asadivar, um, it, it speaks to the unpredictably, unpredictability of life and kind of the power of God. Uh, Guru Sahib says, So with just a glance, uh, God or Guru Sahib can transform kings into blades of grass. So, you know, we can, we can say that we're clever or we are what we are for... Um, because of our own doing or our own cleverness but that's not always the case and i think kind of accepting that unpredictability is part of humbling yourself yeah um we just wanted to kind of shift a little bit but in terms of like language uh why does language matter when we talk about mental health yeah um this is a pretty powerful concept i think uh this is across all fields um uh in mental health and disabilities one um one example that we have in uh the special education field is uh it used to be a common phrase where we say you know emotionally disturbed child or autistic child or intellectually disabled child and i think what that language does it attaches the disability with the student and um it kind of lumps them together as opposed to if you were to say child with autism it's something that they have or child with an emotional disorder um I think that language is powerful in that it separates the child or the person from that disability. And hopefully that language um, can help them overcome that disability once they see that it's separate from them. Right. No, I think that even circles back. Uh, it's kind of a good conjunction in terms of the question with the previous question. Um, sometimes, uh, like, for example, even the, in the Punjabi culture, if someone were to get hurt uh, physically, they'd be like, oh, like, jockey, like, go to the doctor and get it fixed. And they don't actually um, stigmatize that portion uh, or that uh, type of, like, uh, issue that you have. But when it comes to mental health issues, that they do. So it's like changing the language around that, even in Punjabi, might help kind of destigmatize that, right? Yeah, definitely. Once um, a physical manifestation of an injury is easy to see, but something that's going on in someone's in someone's mind or their heart is not easy to see, and even the thoughts that are going on in people's... It's, it's not something that's visible. So it's. I, I guess that's why it's easier to stigmatize because you can't see it, so you kind of create your own reality. But if someone mm-hmm. has... If someone's bleeding, you know, you can't say, hey, you're not bleeding. It's very obvious that you are. So I think the framework and the context there is that's why it exists that way. Yeah. And you can see both realities, right? Like uh, with with the physical 
uh, physical, both people can see that reality. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, so they can describe it. Unarguable. It's it is it is what it is. As opposed to, um, it's as opposed to if someone saying, you know, I'm going through this, then it becomes a little subjective because then someone thinks from their own reality saying, you know, this either hasn't ever happened to me, so how could it be happening to you? You can't just fathom kind of what's going on with it. Right. Them. So, yeah. Right. Um, I actually wanted to, uh, based on the language, like what kind of language we should use when we're talking about mental health, mm-hmm. uh, the first time I'd heard of you is from that talk that you did at Indiana University. Mm-hmm. And there you mentioned particularly about the language around suicide. Could you talk a little bit about that as well? Because I found it really interesting. I think other people will too. Yeah. Um, I think the point I made there was um, a lot of times we say someone committed suicide. Um, and the push in the mental health community now, now is to say that someone died by suicide. Um, and again, it's operating under that same kind of logic in saying that if someone dies by suicide, um, it's, you separate them from the suicide. So you say that, you know, they died by a certain, if someone died by a fire or they died by a gunshot wound in the same way they died by suicide, it's not, they committed suicide and took their own life. And I think, um, part of that also speaks to the stigma. And I think the language that we use can help in destigmatizing because once we can separate, um, the mental health or the suicide or whatever it is from the person, then we can say, you know, this is a challenge that we can think about and overcome, hopefully, um, instead of saying, you know, it's something inherent or something that they were going to, it's something that they committed. So, um, language is always, is always important to use because the language we use, we internalize it and and it kind of becomes our reality. So, being really careful. And at the same time, I know there there are a lot of changes in terminology that are happening. Um, so keeping up with those can kind of be tough. So my perspective has always been, you know, as long as you have good intentions and you're open-minded and you're willing to learn, then these changes can happen. Um, there are a lot of people that are critical when someone makes a mistake. Um, right. When they say, you know, like even after the talk um, that I gave in Indiana, someone asked a question that said, um, if someone commits suicide and I didn't really stop them or critique them at the moment because I knew that they were, they were, I felt that the perspective they were asking the question was to actually gain knowledge. And so I didn't really make it a point to, to stick that his like, Hey, no, you can't say commit by suicide. So I think it's also really important to, to be mindful of that. No, I, I actually appreciate that very much because, um, I, I personally haven't really dealt with it with anything, and so it's like some of my friends when they come to me, it's at first it was hard for me to understand that. Obviously, it's just very new, and um, these conversations I've never had before, right, with with certain people, and so I then I got into a stage where I actually felt that if I said anything, I would offend someone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's where it's like that kind of prevents you from actually learning because then you never have the ability to ask those questions because you're afraid of offending people, you know? Exactly. And, you know, in the age of social media, everything is critiqued and anything you put online, there's a million people that understand your perspective and then a million people that are against it. So I think the intention in that aspect, the intention is the most important part. If you're coming from a place of empathy and understanding and, and you know, you're genuinely trying to help someone, 
then I think maybe if you don't have the perfect language, it's not too big of a deal because you're trying to do the right thing. And I think just being open-minded to that, you know, there are changes, there are improvements that that everyone can make. Um, and being open-minded to that, I think that trait is the biggest. Yeah, and you just mentioned um, you're trying to do the right thing and you have good intentions. One thing I, I think that a lot of people get when they share their problems about any mental health issues they might have is that, you know, you should turn to Guru Saib, you should read more Bani, you should do more Simran. People might say that Sikhi is enough to deter away from these problems and you don't really need Western methods of coping, you don't really need therapy or something as far as medication. Yeah. Um, that your psychological well-being is your choice. Yeah. What would you, as somebody who teaches children going through these things, what would you say to somebody who says that? You know, a lot of times I think we try to separate religion and basic logic um, and saying that, you know, you do part and you um, read Barney and you go to Sangat and you don't need therapy. Well, my perspective is that is therapy. You know, and and so saying that that is a way of coping and that is exactly what Western logic is telling you to do in saying that you need you need a support group. Well, your support group can be your Sangat. You need therapy. You know, your your therapy can be your conversations that you do while you're doing Simran or while you're reading Barney. So I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive, though we'd like to do that. Um, uh, so I do agree that just doing Simran and Bhakti, they make you more resilient. Um, but another part of aspect of that is just the opportunity to have the thought to say that I want to go to Sangat or I want to sit down and do Simran or I want to listen to Kirtan. I think even that should not be taken for granted. And I, I think a lot of times people in positions in, in of authority within our Gurdwari or people that we you know regard as people that are... Um, you know, very religious, if they're taking those things for granted, then I think then then we need to reconsider kind of the authority that we've given them because Bani is all about being humble. And um, just, I have a few small examples. Um, in the first Ashpadi, in the third, in the first Ashpadi of Sukhmani Sahib, it says, uh, Guru Sahib says, Se simre, jin ap simrai. So those alone remember him in meditation whom he inspires to meditate. So just the act of saying, just do Simran, you'll be okay. Like even the thought of you like saying, I'm going to sit down and do Simran is a blessing in itself given from right. Guru Sahib. So it's yeah. not something to be egotistical about. All of this ties back to ego in one way or another. Um, in uh, Raga Guru Sahib says, ave. So when you enter my mind, teri maya is through your mercy. So, the act of you entering my mind and me having that thought of remembering you is an act of mercy from you. So Barney, like time and time again, will take ego out of the picture. And then we time and time again, will try to bring it back into the picture just because it's kind of what we're naturally yeah. inclined to do. Um, at the era, at the end of the side, this is a pretty common one. We say, Hoa ap deal mano na besarian. So through your kindness and mercy, we don't forget you. So again, mercy, kindness from Guru Sahib towards us, and then we don't forget him. Um, Guru Arjan Dev Ji also says, Kar kirpa vaso mere herde hoye sahai aap. Kar kirpa, so through your mercy, vaso mere herde, dwell within me. 
So please kind of do this garage or this task um, th with through your help is how it's going to happen. So there's just there's there's a ton of examples that Bonnie has that removes our ego from the picture, especially when it comes to religious tasks. Um, so again, we like to attribute our own uh our own cleverness and our own actions. And we like to think that we put our, if we remember God or we're going to Sangat. And again, that puts ego into the picture. And there was one quote I read recently um, that says, if becoming more religious has made you more judgmental and harsh, you need to reevaluate if you are worshiping God or your ego. Yeah, uh, I love that. Yeah, because I, I mean, if, if, us becoming more religious has made us more critical of people that aren't, then we're not really living by the true example. And therefore, we can never inspire or, or do anything for, for anyone else if we ourselves are just continuing to be critical of people that aren't. I mean, it, and it sets a very, very bad example, in my opinion. Um, and if anyone was connected in our religion, and if anyone we hold the highest regard to its Guru Sahib. So Guru Sahib, like for example, I think this is a Guru Arjan Dev Ji says, So Guru Sahib says, all of this glory and this greatness belongs to you. I pray that no one remembers me. So if our Guru, the, the prime example of kind of how we model our lifestyle is saying that, I don't want anyone to remember me. All of this. Guru Gobind Singh Ji says, sab at the end of Jopayasad. So he says, I didn't say any of this. This is all through, through your mercy and your kindness that you've blessed me with these words. So continually, continually removing ego. And I think once we make that a part of our lifestyle, that will help in destigmatizing. Right. And so, first of all, like... You kind of mentioned that the whole thesis of what you just said is like essentially that all of our actions, we, we anything we try to do, we say, okay, we'll do this karma of sitting down and doing simran. Um, that will uh, we kind of attribute it like that's our actions, right? And yeah. we're actually doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I know that from previous conversations as well as this conversation, we've kind of um, mentioned that you you kind of talked about being more empathetic, yeah, right? Um, by realizing the fact that. These actions aren't really um, what we should attribute our good mental health to. That once we realize that, we can actually be more empathetic towards others. Can you talk a little bit more about that, going into detail about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, empathy, I think, is huge. And I think even um, within different contexts now, even in the business world, even in educational settings, the concept of empathy is getting bigger because people are realizing kind of the power of reflecting i mean we've had the age-old saying of you know put yourself in someone else's shoes and essentially that's speaking to empathy but applying that is a little bit tougher because when it comes to mental health these are things that we a lot of people go through and on the same on the same token a lot of people have a tough time understanding when they don't go through them. So if someone is going through depression and you've never been through depression, it's hard for you to understand kind of exactly what it is that they're going through. But my opinion has always been, it shouldn't take you to, it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to go through an experience 
for you to understand what someone else is going through because you can be supportive through a variety of ways, um, through a variety of things by doing and saying the right things. And so this opinion that while I understand that experience is powerful and experience is a very good teacher, it shouldn't necessarily take that for you to be empathetic. So um, there, there's two words that are kind of used uh, interchangeably of sympathy and empathy. So sympathy is simply caring and understanding uh, for what someone else is going through. But empathy is actually feeling it yourself. So once you can feel what someone is going through, then everything they say becomes valid. That's, that's how I've, I've always viewed yeah. it. It's, it's saying mm. that, you know, you might be going through something and I might not fully understand it, but whatever you're saying is validated. And sometimes that validation is huge. For example, I think it was, um, there was a Sikh organization, uh, I want to say Insaf. And Insaf was going into Punjab and taking the stories of all of, uh, all of the people back in the parents that have lost, that the Indian government had disappeared, one of their sons, husbands, um, fathers, whatever it might be. And I, I asked one of the people that was doing it, like, you know, what's the objective behind this? Are we trying to create a database or what are we trying to do? And he said that, you know, our main objective is just to give those moms validation. It's just to say that someone wow. is listening to your story and someone is understanding what you're going through. And we're never going to be able to bring their sons back. And we're never going to be able to bring their husbands back. They're gone. You know, but just the power of me saying that I understand what you're going through. And someone is here to listen to you. That was their primary objective. And I think that was ve that was very powerful to me. Because I think that's universally applicable. If someone is going Definitely. through something, you can, you can be empathetic towards them. Um, and feel what they're feeling and validate validate what they're saying so um again coming coming back once we can put our ego aside and realize the fact that nothing in life is permanent um and when once we realize that bonnie tells us only nam is is permanent empathy becomes a natural response to someone suffering so a few small examples um in salok mahalanoma she says Jo anhoni hoy, so uh, it's a very anxiety creating experience when something unexpected happens. But this is the way of the world; nothing is stable or permanent. So, again, attaching yourself to something that is stable and permanent is is huge, and I'll I'll get to that point in a second. Um, another toka that kind of tells us about the fragility of our state. You know, once we like to say that, you know, we're unbreakable or whatever it might be, or, you know, our jobs are great. We have a lot of wealth. We're powerful. We're smart. Um, and once we, again, once we attribute that to our ego, it's kind of where we go wrong. So Guru Sahib says, So we place a, a lot of confidence in our body or in, in, within ourselves but guru sahib's call uh, refers it to a panda which is like kind of like a dish but the direct translation is like a fragile vessel so ourselves we are fragile 
it breaks with the slightest stroke. So if it falls, it breaks. If something tips it over, it might implode from the inside, whatever it might be. You know, we are very fragile. And once we realize that, we remove our ego from the picture and then we can, that will help us become more empathetic. So um, I refer to the concept of permanence. Uh, if we attach ourselves to our, you know, anything that's not permanent, which is basically anything that we see with our eyes is not permanent. Um, whether that be our families, our houses, our cars, our jobs. Um, so what do we attach ourselves to? That's kind of the, the question is what, what can we attach ourselves to? Because we want to put ourselves in a position where we're stable. I think, I think stability is, when it comes to mental health, stability is the name of the game. Kind of how do I manage? Um, so any, as like, like I said, anytime we place our happiness in things that are unstable, we leave our mental health at risk. So what do we attach ourselves to? So Guru Sahib, Guru Nanak Dev Ji in Raag Sort says, so tir is the word for stable or permanent in, in Sikhi. So what should I ask for? Nothing remains permanent. So please bless me with your name. So just by simple logic, Nam, Guru Sahib is telling us, is permanent. It is, you know, um, it is ad such. So Jogad such, happy such, it's in Mool Mantar. So it was true in the beginning, it's true throughout the ages, it's true here and now, it's forever and ever true. So that is something that is permanent and that is something we should attach ourselves to. Um, and I think once we do that, once we realize that, we put ourselves in, in, a, in a good position. Yeah, wow. Going back to what you said at the right, right at the beginning when he first asked the question it kind of reminded me of uh like recently the thousand oaks shooting okay that happened mm -hmm. i don't know if you know but one of the victims of that shooting was elena housley and she's related to a fox news reporter his name is adam housley uh -huh. that's his niece and he's um some people have said that he's a little bit racist because when the trayvon martin shooting happened he went on twitter and he was like uh, the shooting that happened is very sad. I'm sympathetic towards Trayvon Martin's family, but I don't think that had anything to do with race. Okay. And people will have varying opinions about that. People yeah. will say it did have something to do with race. Others will not. Him as a white man, people are going to judge him saying something. He's yeah. married to a black woman, but you know, he, people are going to judge him automatically and say, like, you don't know what we're going through. But it kind of made me think, like, him, instead of him saying, hey, like, this had nothing to do with race. He could have said something like what you said. You know, I don't understand what you're feeling. Yeah. Like, but I, but I can try my best because at any moment it could happen to me. Yeah. And it's crazy how Guru Saib works because he was talking about Trayvon Martin who was shot and then his niece was shot. And yeah. at the time of Trayvon Martin's shooting, he, he wasn't talking about gun laws. Okay. And at the time of his niece's shooting, he's now advocating for proper gun laws yeah. in the state that he lives in, California. That's and it, it just, it, it was like, you know, like, you know, it's really easy for you to sit on the outside and say things like that, but until you don't go through it yourself. But then it goes back to the point, like, you know, he didn't need to experience it in yeah. order to give an intelligent response. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, he did need to experience it. Yeah. Because I mean, that made cases. him now more empathetic. Exactly. 
Yeah. I, I think it actually also goes, I was just watching something um, just on the topic of empathy in general. Um, it was uh, a lot of these workers now that the government's shut down in America for about 20 days now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of people that are in the prison guard government system that are um, without pay without some of the without jobs right now yeah. um, for temporary purposes and they're not getting their paycheck. And then they said, well, did you vote for Trump? Mm-hmm. And everybody in that table had said, yes, we voted for Trump. We actually want the wall. Yeah. Um, the only issue is that they're like, well, we don't want it now because we're not getting our paychecks. So yeah. we don't want it at the cost of our paychecks, right. you know? And so they're like, we don't really need the wall. Like, it's just a tool. Now they've gotten, they've yeah. kind of backpedaled, right? Yeah. And it's so, it's interesting how when something affects you or even a even a byproduct of it is affecting you, that's when you start really considering, right. oh, what are the repercussions of this? Like, uh, uh, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's so inf- unfortunate and it speaks to human tendencies that it would take a family member of yours getting hurt for you to understand what yeah. someone else is going through. But unfortunately that's the reality of it. Um, and, and, and it's, it's sad, but it's, it's a human tendency. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. You never know how Guru Sahib is going to, going to do what he's going to do. Um, but like, like I was saying, uh, there was actually a couple, a few more things I wanted to mention about being, about attaching yourself to Guru Sahib and being permanent. Um, because Barney, for 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 at least for, in my experience of of when I when I read Barney and how I understand Barney, it's it's always a, it's always been a stabilizing force kind of in in my life, and then as I read more Barney, there are things that will come up that will kind of reinforce that. Um, one example is in Sokumi Sab. Uh, Guru Sab gives um the example, kind of the analogy of how a palace is supported by its pillars. That's the same way that our mind is supported um, by the Guru Da Shabad. So it says, Jo mandar ko thamme thaman, teon gur ka shabad mane as thaman. So our mind is supported. It's just, it's, a, it's such a great example. And it says so much in like six or seven words in each line. It's just, it says our mind is supported in the same way that a pillar supports the palace. I think that for me, that was, that was very powerful when I heard it. And, and, and it's, we read examples even in Ardas it says Nanak Naam Jahaj Hai Chade So Par So Naam is the Jahaj that's gonna kind of it's it's the vehicle that's gonna kinda of take us across. And so as long as we spend our life kind of attaching ourselves to temporary happiness, that temporary happiness goes away eventually and then we kind of look to fill that void with other things. But the thing with Naam is and the thing with Gurbani is it not only fills the void, it's kind of, it kind of fills you permanently. So in a way that you don't need to fill the void with anything else because there's no void left after it. So that, that's been my experience. Um, one, one analogy that I've, I've thought of recently is like mountain climbers, when they're descending down a mountain, they need to make sure that whatever they've attached their rope to is very, very stable. Because if it's like a loose rock or something that's going to come off, they're going to be, they're going to fall down that mountain. But so they make sure they attach it to something very, very stable. And once they, then they can descend down the mountain safely and they feel safe and they can make it to the bottom safely. And so if we, we can use that same example in saying, um, sometimes it's a spouse that we're really attached to, or, or sometimes it's our children that we're really attached to. And 
there is, in my opinion, a big difference between mu and biar. Um, that's that's the concept I've spoken to recently as well. Is mu is attachment and biar is love. In Punjabi, they're interchangeably used a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. that's always confused me because I, because like when I was a kid, I was like, is it more bad? And then, yeah. and then, you know, people want to be like, oh, <laughs> so like I did my own research and I was like, there's so many examples within, within just like Sakhis. And like, if you look at Guru Sahib, Guru Gobind Singh Ji and Chamkaur Digari, he had the older Sahib Jadde that, that had died in the battlefield. And as they were leaving Chamkaur Digari, um, you know, one of the two of the Panch Pyare were with Guru Sahib, and they told Guru Sahib as they were passing, I think, um, Ajit Singh's body. They were passing Ajit Singh's body, and they said, Guru Sahib, you know, this is Sahib Ajit Singh. Don't you want to, like, cover him or, like, you know, give, like, look at him one last time? And mm-hmm. Guru Gobind Singh Ji did something phenomenal. He said, If I cover him and I don't cover, like, the rest of the things, then that kind of shows be. You know, like they're just they're separate yeah. from me. So mm-hmm. when we talk about the concept of Panth Parvar, we've had so many examples just within our own history where Guru Sahib didn't look upon his quote unquote own children as he did the rest of the things. You know? Since he said yeah. So the whole Panth is his family. And I think if we can kind of adopt that thinking, going back to your example. If we can adopt that, you know, Trayvon Martin is my child, then I don't need my own family member or my niece to get shot for me to talk about gun laws. I can, mm-hmm. I can talk about Trayvon Martin as my own child and say that's, that's something that I need to get done because he's someone's child, which makes him my child. And so this is something that I need to do. And I think people in positions of authority, I think for them, it's even more important to adopt these values. Yeah. Yeah, instead of like when people say Black Lives Matter, other people will respond, "All lives matter." Right. Gay yeah. lives matter. They'll be like, "All lives matter." Like you're yeah. you're missing the point of what they're trying exactly. to say. You're lacking empathy in what they're going through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but w- we spoke about empathy a lot, and I find maybe it's because this has happened to me personally. I, I, I'd assume it happens to people like you who work with children with special needs or even a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I work as a massage therapist, which is not the same at all. I'm not qualified to help people with mental health problems, but uh-huh. I find that sometimes I'll take their problems onto myself and I've had to learn to separate that and not let it affect my mood yeah. positively and negatively. Like sometimes I want to, I want to like, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to massage this person. I don't really feel like talking to this patient right now. I want to do Japji Saib throughout this massage. And they'll share like a really happy story and I'll get so happy and excited with them that (laughs) I won't focus on my purpose. And then in a negative way, people come in, they're stressed out and they share their personal experiences with you. And then all of a sudden I'm down as well. So I've had a problem with separating the two. Have you ever had anything like that? Um, Yeah, I mean, generally speaking... Um, for me, I hear so much 
about uh, kids' trauma. And, and for me, it's tough to deal with just because they're so innocent. Like, I feel like with adults, it's you can hear their stories and you're like, you know, okay, so there are steps that you can take. But in my situation, the kids that I work with are literally, they cannot do anything about it. They're living in abusive homes um, and they don't have the resources to say, you know, like, I'm going to move or um, I'm going to call this person to help me move out. Like, they're just completely helpless. So when you hear something like uh, when you see someone in that situation and they're going through trauma, like um, just recently I had a student whose parents were fighting and he was begging his dad not to leave the house. Like stories like that just, they they do definitely affect my mood because it's like the kid did nothing to like deserve this and now he's being put in a position where he's he's having to beg his his father to stay home because his parents were fighting and he didn't come to school the next day. So he's upset. So stories of trauma definitely do affect your mood. And I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing um, until it gets damaging. If, mm-hmm. if you can take on someone's pain and, and it becomes your pain and you get into a different state of mind, I think then it, then it becomes damaging. I think every function within the human body has a reason for it even down to our scabbing like we scab so that the wound will heal and then once the scab falls off like there's a purpose for everything so I think there is a purpose for feeling someone's pain and that is to kind of first validate what they're saying and then if you have the resources kind of help them come up with an action plan of you know what what can we do to make this better? Like, do you need someone to talk to you? Do you need resources? Do you need just uh, someone to listen to you? Do you need help in any way? As long as it leads to some type of action plan, I think you taking on someone's pain has an objective and, and it can be productive. But if it simply affects your mood, then um, I think it becomes damaging. Even Barney says like... Um, it's talking about stability again. I forget the exact book, but it talks about not feeling pain in times of pain and not getting too overly happy in times of happiness. It's kind of, again, mm-hmm. that that being stable. So once you're that stabilizing force in other people's lives, then um, you can definitely make a difference. But you do want to set boundaries and say, I don't want this to become damaging to my to my mental health. Uh, kind of going back towards what you said a bit earlier while you were just answering the question, um, you mentioned how the child um, wanted his father to stay and that just that dynamic between parents and how that can affect a child. Yeah. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend today who's a teacher as well and she works in a, as well as in a low-income family area mm-hmm. and um, she told us a story where there's this one child who wasn't able to come to uh, school because uh, 53 days out of the 80 um, that were part of the the semester. And she said that's because a lot of the times her mom was drunk and she just wouldn't wake up to take him to school. And one time the parent actually came with them and they, the parent passed out at school, like in the playground. Yeah. So um, it was just very radical to hear that. And then she went on about, how it actually affects them so much that sometimes they don't get food so she brings in food for them um because she knows that they're not going to be able to perform Mm -hmm. um and they just don't have that ability uh, and like so such a disadvantage um so just that that relationship or that uh, dynamic between parents and kids uh what would you recommend to parents 
uh, to do to be able to say, yes, I understand what you're going through or what type of systems or uh, resources can they go to to uh-huh. be able to be a bit more open minded? Yeah, um, that's that's definitely a tough one because parents are the biggest role mo- role model in kids' lives, at least in the formative years. And once they see such a negative <laughs> role model or such negative examples so early on in their life, they're like sponges. They're taking everything in, which is why a lot of the students I have that are in third, fourth grade, if they have parents that are in gangs or have been in gangs or they have brothers that are in gangs, they start to display those behaviors. And right. it's it's almost, it becomes a part of who they are because while they're developing in their developmental years these are the experiences that they're exposed to and that becomes who they are so uh, on the same token i have a student that um is very violent and very physically abusive and when you look into his history he has a father that has road rage issues that has pulled over and beaten people up right in front of him while he was in the car Mm -hmm. seat in the back so that becomes a part of who they are so Having a kid is not hard. I mean, anybody can have a kid, but parenting is very, very tough. And I think the things that you reinforce, um, there's a quote that says, um, don't be afraid if your kid doesn't listen to you. Be afraid that your kid is always watching you. Because your words, it's very easy to tell whether you mean what you say or not, but it's hard to fake your lifestyle. So if you act a certain way, it's hard to change that about you. But words, anyone can say what they want. They can read off a script and, and it's that easy. So And kids pick up on that. Um, and that's something that I've been exposed to um, time and time again. If I don't set the right example, even I have to watch the interactions that I have with other, other staff members in front of the students. Because I tell them, you know, we're supposed to greet each other. We're supposed to be respectful. You know, we're supposed to do all these things. But if I don't interact that way with my other staff, they're picking up on that example. So I think in the same way, parenting is the same exact way. Your child is always watching you. You are the primary role model. So what you reinforce or what you choose to take down, parenting is is a tough answer. And there's so many articles on the right way to parent, you know, don't say no, don't do this. I think Mm -hmm. if you're trying your best and having an open mind, um, I have, we have uh, a student here that, um, we have an organization in the States called a child protective services. So if you have a child protective services called to your house for whatever reason, if there was neglect or um, if the school or the organization felt uh, a need to go and visit and see what's going on, they do have resources for you um, as far as, you know, mandatory parenting lessons. Um, Like this is what you need to do for your child, or this is what we would recommend you do. But that is so far along, like that is pretty extreme for someone to go through those parenting classes. I think, I believe that they should be offered free of cost, like to any parent that would want to do it. Because especially yeah. in low income areas, a lot of the parents don't have time to to think about what their child is thinking about. They're just working about, they're just worried about working, providing food and just the very basics so they can get by. They don't have time mm-hmm. to parent properly or parent in a loving, nurturing way, give their kids attention, all these things. But if they can realize the importance of these things, maybe they can take some time or, or find a way to make those things happen. Maybe take their kid to work with them or whatever it might be. The smallest right. gestures make a, make a big difference in a kid's life. Um, and I think parenting is, is a huge factor. Um, parenting is, um, there are a variety of reasons that, that kind of 
contribute to emotional disorders, but parenting and negative uh, experiences in a young child's life is kind of why I have the set of students that I have. And wow. once you meet with the parents and you read their past, there's just so much trauma and it's, it becomes completely obvious. It would be weird for a kid to go through those experiences and not have an emotional disorder. That's the way right. I see it. Because if, if you've witnessed this abuse and you've witnessed, you know, your mother being abused or you've gotten hit or you've been left out um, overnight outside or whatever it might be, or you're living in a homeless life, like you're going to develop some type of emotional Definitely. disorder. So our hope is since it was not something that you were born with, our hope is that we try to provide them with the tools so they can cope with it and still continue to be productive citizens. As opposed to disabilities like autism spectrum disorder, if they're very far along the spectrum, it's not it's something that they're born with. So it's not something that they'll ever like, like oh we're n- we don't have autism anymore. It's not, it's just not going to happen. They're, they can get mm-hmm. tools and stuff, but emotional disorders and behavioral disorders, I feel like, are something that they can still be very very contributing to society and very positive role models if they get the right experiences so that's kind of our objective as as people that work with them right no and and that kind of so i understood the tone in terms of like parenting is very difficult and and i completely understand that and i i i think what i was trying to go towards as well is first of all just a quote that i remembered while you're saying that is like kids they don't uh, listen to what you say, but they they do what you do or something mm-hmm. like that, something yeah. along those lines, right? Uh, or follow what you do. Uh-huh. And um, But another point uh, that I wanted to say was that sometimes uh, parents, they, uh, what I was trying to uh, kind of get by is like parents, uh, what, what, what type of environment or, um, so I guess they can go to those classes and, uh, get that uh, guidance and education, yeah. but sometimes they just don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Right. And so it's like just giving giving them that type of knowledge uh, would be very helpful. But and specifically the Punjabi Sikh community, because most of us, I don't know about you, were I don't know what are we called first generation. Yeah, first the, generation. Like, yeah. Our parents are immigrants. Yeah. So there's uh, a barrier. English is not their first language; it's our first language, mm-hmm. and we're growing up with social media. They. My dad only knows how to make phone calls. Yeah. And uh, so there, there's that barrier of like, how do you talk to your parents, especially teenagers? Like I'm 25. I feel like when you're, I guess, mostly when you're a little bit older, it's different. But for teenagers, they want their parents to understand them. Mm-hmm. So how can how can parents without actually knowing what depression is without actually knowing what anxiety mm-hmm. is or what the pressures of social media are doing to the kids these days yeah. how can they still have healthy dialogue with the ch- with their children Um I think it goes back to the formative years of a child I think two things that are that are universal whether you speak the same language or not are love and <laughs> are love and attention So if you can give your child love and attention um for in the formative years of their life you put them on a very in a very very good position to be healthy kids um the example that i like to think of is why a lot of kids in punjab have grown up happier and healthier is because they grew up in in a in a place where 
a lot of families lived together. Like, let's say they grew up in the Pind. Mm. They had a lot of other kids to play with. They had grandparents. They had uncles, chache, tai. Everyone was around to give them attention. So they kind of grew up in a family dynamic with a larger family. And they got a lot of love and attention in their formative years. As opposed v- to now. A village to raise you. A village to raise a kid, right? Exactly. It was literally a village that rose that that raised your <laughs> child. But yeah. now we're operating in these silos where you know mom is working, dad is working, kid has to go to childcare, kid comes back. It's just it's not the same dynamic, and and that's not an excuse. But I think if they can, like in the parents, if they were to able to get, they, you know, they had a lot of interaction. You don't need to set up play dates all, all day. Every day was a play date. So, yeah. <laughs> so that, that was a different dynamic. And so when I, and when I look at my, my parents' generation and his brothers and sisters and my mom, they grew up happier and healthier because they just had, you know, they had a big family unit and they were able to operate under that. So it's different nowadays. Um, back to your question of how to communicate with your parents. I think a lot of times it's, we feel a barrier in, in communicating with our parents and if we feel like they're not going to understand us fully, there are other people that we can turn to. You know, there are other resources we can turn to as far as friends and stuff. Because if it's almost more work to try to make them understand than it is to mm-hmm. just kind of say that, you know, you're a supportive figure in my life, but you might not understand what I'm going through. So I'm going to talk to someone that does understand. And, you know, you can help me out at, at wherever things that you can possibly help me out with this is most likely not something you'll understand like i'm not going to ask my dad about something at my work most likely like he knows stuff about kids and stuff but when it comes to like positive negative reinforcements i'm not going to turn to him about it so i'm going to get his guidance as far as what were my experiences as as a child and so he did help me out in that way. But I'm going to talk to, let's talk to a behavior therapist. You know, what can I do in this? So there are resources and people that you can turn to. Um, but going back to Bonnie, Bonnie's huge. You know, like our Sangat is huge. Our Panth Parvad is huge. And there are Shabads, Harnave Nal Galla, Harnave Nal Maslat. Harnave, Harnam is basically God's name. Nal Galla, so our conversation is with the Guru's Nam. And Harnave Nal Maslat. So when we say am masala khada ho gaya, it's like a problem. So har nave nar maslat. So our counseling, our therapy is also through Guru's Nam. So we we do have very, very powerful resources. So I think the language barrier is is a genuine is a genuine barrier that we have with our parents. But they don't need to be the answer to all of all of our problems. They can be they can be helpful and they can be loving and if there's an issue that we're having with our parents as far as communicating with them, or we feel like there's a certain reason we can't communicate with them, then at the very least, we learn what not to do when we have kids. Like, mm-hmm. how we can be resources for our kids under the context that there's a language barrier, or there's an understanding barrier, or there's an education barrier, whatever it might be. How can we use that example to be resources for our kids, or our nieces and nephews, or kids in the younger generation? So... To every example, there is a non-example that we can also learn from. Um, and I think that's that's the kind of takeaway from that. Definitely. Yeah, that's a really good point. And yeah. I think at some point, especially for younger kids, like I'm 25, I have a 17-year-old friend. I have a little bit of a hard time bonding with her because she's in grade 12 and I'm married and out of school for a few <laughs> years now. So we just don't have that much in common. But 
one thing that she always says she's dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety and she always says like my mom she just doesn't get me she just like I try to talk to her she doesn't get it and I'm always like there comes a point where you have to forgive her and just move on. Yeah. Like you said, like yeah. just forgive your mom. She, she didn't grow up like that. She doesn't understand it. You just have to forgive her and go to other sources that may understand you because your parents can't fulfill every single role that you're yeah. going to need in your life. And just to add on to that, um, as I was thinking back, it's like, um, just to give a perspective to the <laughs> listeners as well. Um, what, what I want to just get out there is that our parents, at the same time of saying all this, they might not understand, they might not uh, under, uh, uh, like get mental health and all that kind of stuff. Um, and some of them might, but and not. this doesn't apply to all parents. Most parents, it's like they're trying. They're yeah. trying very hard. A lot of the first generation like parents that came here, they came with nothing. They built everything from scratch. And so just to give tribute to that, they've tried really hard, um, at least the examples I've seen, to mm-hmm. put food on the table, provi- provided amazing education to the children and give them a better life uh in this uh in, in this in these countries right and so um with all that being said if we expect even that um that extra layer it would be great and we should push for it but at the same time we should forgive them as you said yeah exactly it's huge i think they grew up in a time where if there was mental health issues either they were ignored but i mean i can speak for a lot of the first generation people here they're not concerned about how they're feeling or they're not concerned about, you know, different things. They're concerned about, I need to make this house payment. My kid needs right. to go to school. I need to make, and I think it's an unreasonable expectation for us to say, now you yeah. need to listen to this too. Exactly. You know, so I think that's where we, as we need to reflect on ourselves and say, are we being reasonable and, and having that expectation from them? Or they've done, in my perspective, my parents have done more than enough for me to say that, mm-hmm. you know, you've provided for me and you've raised me until this long. Like, that is more than enough. That's a lot more than a lot of people get. So I'm very thankful yeah. for that. And if I need resources, I need to try to find my own resources. I need to go to my friend circle. I need to go to my sangat. I need to go to Guru Sahib. I need to go to whoever it might be. But there are other resources, not your parents or even when it comes to like a spouse your spouse doesn't need to fulfill every single need of yours like right. there are things there are distinctions that you need to make i'm not married yeah. but i'm just speaking from the, <laughs> from the, uh for, for a yeah. future perspective like that's fair that's an ideal situation this person should not yeah. be fulfilling every expectation that you have yeah that's really mm-hmm. unfair to them yeah. and going back to our parents like we're very privileged like you said they were worried about putting food on the table mm-hmm. and you know building homes for us right and yeah. so asking them for more than that it's yeah is a, yeah. Is a lot to ask for it, it yeah. definitely is and I, I think just looking back at my own life um i was they would go out of their way to like make sure that i've studied well if i needed um extra books or anything like that like they would go to the end of the world just to be able to provide that right and so um i think it's very unfair for us to just kind of absolutely um, Right. Yeah. yeah. Have that expectation. And so while that language barrier and that education barrier is very real and it's a real phenomenon, it does exist. I think I don't think it's as big of a problem um, as we think it is, considering the amount of resources that we could take advantage of. Yeah, like resources such as um, now I think our our generation is actually creating resources that uh, might help. And so hopefully that takes on uh, even a greater uh, momentum and mm-hmm. gets widespread. Right. Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to ask you, Vijay, like, um, you, 
you started your Instagram page and mm-hmm. I, I'm assuming your goal is to, you know, do more Pujad of what you experience every day at yeah. work and mental health. And I think Sikhi too, you should, because you speak so well uh, when you. it comes to Sikhi as well. Um, where do you see yourself in a few years, like once you get your doctoral and where do you see the conversation of mental health in our community going? Um, as far as a future direction for me, so there's two questions there. As far as a future direction for me, um, career-wise, I don't really know, to be completely honest. I do want to work mm-hmm. with kids to some, to some capacity, to some extent. Um, exactly what extent, I don't know yet, because the, de- the degrees that I'm getting and the qualifications that I'll have, I'll be able to make changes at a larger level, hopefully. Um, but I do want to continue to work with kids in, in some capacity, so... As far as nailing down a position, I don't know um, where it'll be in even the next five to ten years. Um, and as far as the conversation around mental health, um, I think that, for example, that whatever this podcast that you guys are doing is, is a huge step in the right direction. And I think this conference in Indiana, the fact that you know universities are. Um, acknowledging this as a a genuine issue and having speakers come out and having people come out to listen. I think that is a huge step. And even so I did that talk in Indiana where I was one of the speakers and there were some, um, some people from the older generation. So my parents' generation. So they were, they were listening. I was speaking in Punjabi to whatever extent I could, to whatever my understanding was. And you know they were they were understanding it, but largely they were still confused. Like you know, because it wasn't a genuine issue for them, and even if it was, it was just so tough for them to acknowledge. It's it wasn't really something that they were understanding completely. And and we did a Q and A session. It was funny. We did a Q and A session after the talk, and one of the uncles grabbed his kid and said, you know, here, take this note to Prabhjot Singh. So the I see this interaction happening. The kid brings me a note, and it says. Everything solved. I'm like, okay, like, this is not, first of all, this is not a question. Second thing, I understand what you're saying. Like, I really understand his perspective in that, you know, Bonnie will solve everything. And while I agree with that, there are things that we need to understand for that, for that to become a reality for us. So mm-hmm. I think what we can focus on doing is just saying that, you know, our parents did a lot for us and we should be very, very thankful for what that generation has established. And now that they have given us a platform, what are we going to do with it? So these podcasts just kind of uh, encouraging on social media and being very being sensitive to other people's needs and their feelings and kind of when they're reaching out for, for help, being a resource for them. I think we shouldn't aim to change the world. I think if we can just see what's going on in our own families or in our own friend circles, there is so much need that if we can be a resource to just our very immediate circles, we can make a change at a larger level. So while we should set our goals high and our expectations high, like we want this to become a genuine issue and and we want the community to acknowledge that this exists, and so how are we going to deal with it? Because I always say the first step to change is awareness. So at this point, we're still working to make everyone aware that this is an issue. You know, this exists. And now I think once we establish that, then we can figure out what steps are we going to take to make sure that how are we going to become more resilient to this? How are we going to work to put ourselves in good positions so that these things 
um, become less prevalent. Like I said, everything is unpredictable and anything can happen to anyone at any time. But there are things we can do. For example, um, with heart disease, there are steps that we can take early on in our life to make sure that, you know, this doesn't become a problem for us later on down the line. It can happen and heart attacks do spontaneously happen to even the healthiest of people. But generally speaking, and to a majority of the people, there are certain factors that indicate you know, you are now at risk for heart disease or for a heart attack. So if we look at mental health in the same way, there are steps that we can take as far as um, even on on social media, there's there's stuff going around around like make sure you're happy in real life, not just on social media, because it is a genuine phenomenon. Everyone is posting their highlight reels and their traveling pictures and all these happiness and not showing the true what is going on in their life, the sadness, the problems with their spouses, the problem with their kids, the problems at work. And these are all part of life. And I think once we can accept that, you know, social media is is a very powerful tool and how are we going to use it to its full potential and use it as awareness instead of, you know, just kind of self-promotion. Um, I think uh, we are, I think there are steps that we can take. And so the conversation around it, I'd hope is, acknowledging that this is an issue, but then furthermore, what are we going to do about this? What steps can we can take? For for me, the answer has always been turning to, to Sangat and turning to Guru Sahib and saying like, you know, what what is the right path to take? What is the right way to go? Concepts like hukum, concepts like um, unpredictability, concepts about ego. There is so much that Barney has to offer and it's it's just, it's, it's unfathomable how... Um, how revolutionary it is. You know, we read Japji Sahib every day, we read Rara Sahib every day, and we just kind of recite it, we recite it. But just even a few lines in there, if we can just stop and reflect, some things are, they just, they will blow your mind. So I think it's a huge resource for us. Guru Sahib has provided a huge resource for us, for us to take advantage of. So I think that's the direction that we should take it in. That's awesome. Um, so... We are concluding now, so but before we conclude, we always like to do these random five questions. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and uh, get into them. Sure. What is your favorite book? Uh, so I don't have much time for pleasure reading, but um, I do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this might seem a little childish because I had read it a long time ago, but Holes by Lewis uh, Sacker. It, they made a movie on yeah. it too with... Uh, Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf, yeah. So yes. I really like that book and the concept behind it. So that's that's probably my favorite book. Okay, and then what is your favorite quote or Bonnie Bhakti? Yeah. Okay. So two. I have I have a, I have so many favorite quotes, but one that to the top of my mind is, um, the it's by Shakespeare. It says, "The earth has music for those who listen." So, for me, that means, you know, there is music if you choose to listen. There is knowledge out there if you choose to understand every experience is something you can learn from. So that's kind of what it meant to me. And Gurbani took so many again, but the one just off the top of my head that's on the background of my phone right now is from Asaliwar. It's Jina Nanak Gurmuk Hirda Shodha. So if you have, I think for me it says intentions. Jina Nanak Gurmuk Hirda Shodha Har Pagat Har Lijay. So Guru Sahib blesses those with Bhakti and with Nam that have from the inside they have the right intentions and they have a pure heart and they that's how they approach things. So that's kind of what I aspire to be. Um 
what is one of your weird quirks? <laughs> okay. Um, so when I'm, uh, when I'm driving, I like to be the first one in line at the stoplight. Um, I'm, I'm, I like cars and I have, I have a couple and I like, uh, sometimes I drive a little faster than I should, but I like to be the first one at a stoplight. So if I'm in a lane where there's three cars ahead of me, but like four lanes to the left, it's empty. I will switch four lanes to be first at the stoplight. So that's, that's a weird thing that I do that my family tells me that I'm weird for doing, but still do it um if you could meet anyone in history who would it be um i would say guru gobind singh ji just because of his practical examples and how phenomenal of a person he was and and what he accomplished in his life and the examples he set for us um that's something i will aspire to be and so if i had the opportunity to meet someone in history it would definitely be him what's your biggest pet peeve um, okay, so there's a couple, but the one that really gets on my nerves. So if I have headphones on, like I have AirPods, and if I'm like walking around or whatever, and someone says something to me without letting me know that they're talking to me, like they'll be midway through the conversation and I didn't hear a thing that they said because of my, for some reason that irritates me. I can't really nail down exactly why, but I just hate <laughs> someone talking to me and I can't hear them and they know that I can't hear them, but they continue to keep talking. So for some reason that just... I think I can kind of relate to that because it's like you can clearly see the headphones yeah, yeah. I'm wearing like, the headphones like tap me or something exactly, or make sure that yeah exactly I'm glad you can relate because yeah, I, yeah. I, <laughs> I thought I was weird for that okay <laughs> um, so to conclude the podcast VG we just wanted to thank you for taking your time out thank you so to much to do the pre-interview that we did and the podcast now and for being open sharing your experiences I learned a lot and it really made me think about, because uh, I only ever think about mental health when it relates to adults because I'm an adult, but it mm-hmm. made me think about the uh, the child's aspect of dealing yeah. with mental health. And So thank you for bringing that perspective onto yeah. the podcast. And language and empathy, yeah, I've learned, yeah, learned a lot. A lot. Well. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I wanted to thank you guys as well for providing a platform. I feel like we have a lot of resources within the community that just kind of are isolated and until an opportunity like this comes out that someone gets to share their knowledge and you provided that platform for them. So I would encourage you to keep going, whether it's in mental health, whether it's in Sikhi, whether it's in just lifestyle in general, I would in, uh, encourage you guys to continue. So thank you for doing that. Awesome. You too. Yeah, thank you. All right. You've been listening to the Experience Sikhi podcast. 